Welcome to this week's episode of Hey, I think we're good here. I'm one of your co-hosts, Jackson Metakekia. And I'm Matt West. And we're here getting to know the sport of volleyball through the life experiences our guests have to share with us. Come take a look. We're back in action with our first guest, professional player Carly Snyder, after a brief hiatus there. Carly takes us through her club and recruiting experience, how much the club game has changed, and why she believes so many recruits transfer after their first year. She discusses her playing time for Mary Wise at the University of Florida and the track she took to becoming a multiple-time All-American. She also talks about how the players actually do evaluations on one another and what that brings to the table at Florida. Enjoy! Hello. Hi. Hi. Jackson, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Carly. Matt, nice to see you again. Great to see you, too. It's been all 48 hours. I know. I know. I haven't known what to do with myself. Normal reaction when people see me. (laughs) Okay. Well, welcome to the podcast, dude. Thank you. I'm really excited. I've listened to a few episodes and and it's really fun to listen to and I'm honored to be on so thanks for having me what's your favorite outside of Mary Wise Maddie of course because she's a well I mean she's a she's a very good friend of mine and I I enjoy listening to her talk about volleyball and her journey because we've spoken about it as individuals so it's just nice to nice to rehear it and she has a really she has a really unique path and a good opinion so yeah it's my favorite one don't roll your eyes, Matt. Your girlfriend's awesome. And yeah. I liked listening to the Mary podcast because I knew a lot about her journey, but um, I wasn't I wasn't super aware of the the beginning of her career and how those how those things we kind of brushed over it when she was explaining that to me and my and my recruiting and while I was at Florida. So it was really interesting to hear it more in depth. She's really cool. She's one of the most fun podcasts that I had. Well, unfortunately, Jackson can hop onto that one, but she's awesome. She reminds me so much of Marv and yeah. like her philosophy towards her athletes, which I obviously admired a lot. I think it's cool. It was cool to listen to because my mom started, was coaching tennis around the same time Mary started coaching college volleyball. And it, I know from like my mom's perspective, how how difficult it was to be a mom and to like balance winning and making people into actual good people when they're done leaving your program, which I think like, as you've been in it a little bit longer, you kind of have the room to, to wiggle on that. But in the beginning, it just felt like if an athletic director could, could like fire a female head coach, it was like definitely going to happen. So, so you really had to produce, which is cool to hear about in the beginning of, of her journey and related to my mom's. Yeah, she's totally stuck it out, obviously. She's had tremendous success. Yeah, exactly. For sure. Well, uh, Jackson, how do we start this? It's been a while. Been a while. No, just uh, tell us how you got started in volleyball and kind of why did you pick volleyball versus, uh, yeah, anything else? I so my, my mom is a college tennis coach. My dad is a basketball coach. So I played both of those sports growing up. And I did enjoy those sports and I, I had a lot of fun playing, but there wasn't, there wasn't this like 
passion or drive necessarily. It was just that my family's really sporty and we love to play. So I was always participating in something. And then my sister, who's three years older, was on her middle school volleyball team. At that time, like club was just mind blowing to my family that people could play year round and pay money to play volleyball. So when my sister tried out for the middle school team, she actually was invited to be on like a state or regional club team, which from my like 11 year old's eyes, when I was watching those players on my sister's 14 year old state team, I was like mind blown. And I would come to her practices and stay on the side of the gym. My mom would come with us and I would like bump against the wall and try to mimic the drills that they were doing in her, in her practice until eventually I would just pray that someone was sick or injured because then they would need an extra body. And I would be invited to be the worst player on the floor who couldn't get my serve over the net from like three, I would like stand three fourths of the way in. And so my mom and I would stand in pepper, pepper. We would pass back and forth, try to keep the ball off the ground on the side and just wait for someone to be injured or sick. And that led me to try out for a club team when I was 11 years old on a U12 national team. And it was one of the first times I'd ever played with girls my own age on a net when I showed up to tryouts and my spandex were like hanging off my body. (laughs) And I, you know, basically just got very lucky making a U12 national team when I was young. That's how I got started. Wow. I feel like everybody that has so far on this podcast, everybody that's had success in their career, such as yourself, has started volleyball at a really young age, has come from an athletic background where their parents have coached something. And that being said, did your parents care what sport you played or did they just care that you cared about what you were doing? As coaches, I think my my parents cared very little about what sport I was actually playing. And I think when I was playing basketball, a sport my mom played in college and my dad coached, they knew a lot, but they, they didn't give constant feedback. They were really laid back parents who more so critiqued if I was being a good teammate, if they thought I was working hard. And so when I decided to play volleyball, I... I don't think they knew the opportunities that volleyball could open up for me. My, my mom was like thinking I would never make the varsity volleyball team because she watched those girls and thought they were amazing. So they really didn't care. It was just, I think, exciting to them because as coaches and as you know, because your parents coach Matt, like the favorite athletes are the gym rats who just want to be in the gym, want practice to be five hours long when you're a kid and I was 100% that kid who like made my parents set up a volleyball court in our backyard and was like serving against a fence and then chasing it and then serving the other way and then chasing it. So I think they really enjoyed just watching me care a lot about something. When did it become apparent to your family, probably more your parents than you, that you were going to have some kind of future success in this sport? I asked my mom that not too long ago, because if you, if you watch her watch one of my games, she doesn't really like clap for me because she doesn't want to be that parent who's obsessed with their kid basically. So I was curious what she had to say about that. And just like also looking maybe for some 
some approval from my mother being like, when did you think I was good? Or when did you know I would go and, and play like at a, at a power five school or something? And she said that I was crying when I was 13 about not making the 14 national team because I was always kind of a perfectionist with my game and really was finding the mistakes and wanting to get better. And even as a kid, I was like, I'm not going to make the ones team next year. And I was like, crying about it and my mom told me like the first time she ever told me something like this she was like you were the best player on your team last year like you're you're like good and I think at that point she knew that I was playing well and then it was maybe a year later when I started when I was in eighth grade and I started getting college letters from from power five schools and my parents were like oh uh she's gonna get a college scholarship probably which is very relieving to them because college is freaking expensive that is a pretty wild turn from spandex hanging off the legs to hitting balls over your fence and two years later you now have recruiting letters from power five schools when when i got recruiting letters my spandex were still not fitting i was so skinny so that that was like a up until my sophomore year of high school but yeah that was a common theme and then I yeah I put a little meat on my bones but yeah still working on it what was the first letter you or who did you receive your first letter from do you remember that's that's so funny because I was talking to the coach from Duke about this um I was just talking to her about this recently that she was my first letter uh coach Nagel from Duke and I was, as a kid, like, I'm definitely going to, firstly, I'm definitely going to go to Duke because they're interested in me and wow. And I also made my dad photocopy the letter and I like practiced writing my, my like returned letter to them. And then I like put the actual letter over it and traced everything because I was like, it has to be perfect. They have to want <laughs> me to go to their school. And then now, of course, I know those letters do not really mean all that much and that they go into a filing cabinet, but still it was, it was a huge moment. And I, I remember Duke and Michigan state were my first two letters. At what point in time did you recognize that you wouldn't be going there? Were they in the mix for a long time? Either of those schools? No, no. Michigan state was, was not, I kind of, fluctuated towards Michigan when I was during my when during my recruiting process I more so decided early on like that would be the school in Michigan I would go to if I did go to a school in Michigan and I had a really short recruiting process and I committed really early like my sophomore year when I was 15 early so maybe I was even 14 I was, I was really young and I got some letters and I talked to the coach, Sally Paul Hamas from the old assistant coach of Florida, who's now at Georgia state. And I fell in love with her. She was just so easy to talk to. She was so personable. She's like the perfect recruiter. In my opinion, I got roped in immediately. (laughs) And once I was on campus, I was totally drinking the Kool-Aid or okay, the Gatorade, whatever I was drinking, you know, like I loved Mary Wise. I loved Florida's campus. I loved the girls I met and just committed really early. 
all in headfirst was like, I'm going to Florida with only having seen one other college campus, that being Michigan. That's a very aggressive move, but knowing you it, personally, that's a very you move. <laughs> You're gonna go all yeah. in, you drinking all the Gatorade or the Kool-Aid. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because I got very lucky in my opinion, seeing how common transferring is now and how people don't always have the perfect, perfect college experience. I, I really felt like because I made an early decision, you could call it, you could call any college commitment an uninformed decision, honestly, in my opinion, because you changed so much in just those years that at 15, I thought I was going to be an ESPN announcer. And then I showed up my freshman year and was like, oh, those people wake up really early and wear, wear a lot of makeup and have to do their hair every day. Okay, I don't want to major in broadcasting. And that was just something like I changed six times within my first two years. So 15-year-old me had no clue what I wanted from my college experience. Do you think that's the main reason why there's so much transferring in the women's game? Is because of I the pressure to commit early? I think the pressure to commit early is a huge part of it. I think you change, like I said, you change a lot in those years. And sometimes the player, I like the player I was when I was a freshman and sophomore in high school, getting recruited to these schools. I mean, I needed before college to put on weight and to get better with ball control and to do a lot of things that you have to have a lot of trust in offering someone a scholarship to assume that's going to pan out. And if it doesn't pan out, you can find a school very easily where it will and someone else can come in who's more talented and take your spot in a heartbeat, which I, I think there's a lot of competition in that way for the like not fitting the perfect mold that is expected. And it's also difficult because people come in and they make in big programs, freshmen come in and make huge impacts. And so you're I'm seeing less and less like the patience of the player who comes in and they wait in line and they have an amazing junior and senior year, it just feels like more often than not, like a very talented freshman comes in and has a job for four years. And those kind of players are, yeah, more and more and more prevalent in the game right now. Yes, they are. (laughs) Since you only visited two college campuses, would you, if you could go back, would you do it a little bit differently? I think I would, I would go back and do it differently because I'm, curious now about how people run their programs and I would have loved to meet more coaches personally and see see more college campuses which is so interesting but I really think like I knew I was going to go to Florida after after I was on campus the first time so I I think I would have liked to wait and make a more informed decision let's say but but in the end, that would just be my curiosity for seeing college campuses and meeting coaches, because I, I really do feel strongly that I would have ended up at Florida if I visited 200 campuses or the two campuses that I visited. Was, Definitely. What were your parents like in the in the recruiting process? What was their involvement? Well done, Jack. That would be my question. <laughs> oh, wow. You guys are on the same page. Um, my parents were great during the recruiting process because my my mom is a college tennis coach and I think her biggest fear was me being the kid who can't call the coach and have a conversation myself and to have the parents hovering the entire time 
and kind of holding my hand through the process, which is probably why they let me commit super early, even though I don't know that I would let my daughter do that. Um, but my, my parents made sure that I was informed before I called a coach, like, you know, don't call and not know how they performed last season. Don't call and not know who their best player is or, you know, the assistant coaches on staff and where they previously coached. So I think they were really great at helping me, helping me navigate those conversations and helping me understand that, you know, it was going to be me playing at that school and they were going to have nothing to do with it whatsoever. So I really had to feel comfortable speaking, speaking on the phone and for the two schools I visited, going around on a visit and being the main person to be talking and asking questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a hell of a resource, having yes. your parents be college coaches. My, my dad was a high school varsity coach, but my mom's a college coach. And so, gotcha. Gotcha. yes. I was going to say, um, like piggybacking off of Jackson's question, once you were pretty gung-ho on Florida – did they push you to commit knowing as a college coach, especially your mom, like how, cause there's some kids that keep you on the ropes, you know, mm-hmm. and then they just bounce. So her being in that position, did she push you a little bit to commit and just get it over with? Cause she understood the pressure that the Florida coaches were under. No, no, they, they didn't push me to commit on either side. I didn't feel pressure from the Florida coaches and I didn't feel pressure from my parents who know obviously that Florida had to have three other outside hitters on their call list if I, if I ended up going somewhere else. So I really felt it helped everybody because they knew I was going to commit early. And there was almost my mom kind of said, you can hit the brakes a little bit. Like you're still one of the first people who's going to be committing in your class. Like, you know, you have time to hit the brakes, but like you said, I had this idea in my head and I was like sixth gear pedal to the metal. Let's go. Yeah. Cause for us, my, we were a really, I don't want to say revelatory, like I'm Mandela, but we were a really revelatory class in that we all committed our junior year going Mm. like in the summer of our junior to senior year, Josh Taylor, Matt Tarantino and I all committed. And that was wildly early. Really? For the men's game, that is a wildly early thing. And my mom, Marv's really smart. Marv committed for me. He didn't even let me say it. (laughs) so and i mean he maybe he's rethinking it now but he goes he calls me he goes hey michael christensen was on campus yesterday and i told him hey matt west is coming here next week there'll probably be a wave i was like well what the hell man like he didn't even give me a chance to say yes or no which was a really smart (laughs) move by him so very smart move told my mom and she goes then you got to commit well yeah, that feels like the logical next choice. Right. Do so. you do you feel like the the reason it's later in the men's game is because there's less scholarships available? Uh, I think that could be it. But the women, I think part of it is for sure that. The other part of it is men also just don't mature until a much later age. There are a lot of, if you watch the, the boys game, there are a lot of really good 14-year-old boys that win mm-hmm. and give JOs. And then you never hear about them again. Huh. 
Because they're fully developed men with beards at 15, and then that's it. They've stopped. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Whereas you, like, the, for example, the Puerto Ricans at 14, 13, 12 destroy J.O.'s. They crush it because they're men at that age. Okay. And then they start, like, petering off as they get older. That's interesting. Yeah, I guess I did watch my... It's funny because my, yeah, my, I watched my brother play like middle school basketball and then high school basketball and his middle school basketball team was the shit and they <laughs> were so good. And I was like, these kids are going to the NBA. Like there's, they were killing everybody towering over kids and just like late in high school watching, there was like two players from that team who ever even made varsity Yeah, and my brother didn't attempt it because he knew he was probably not going to be varsity or something, but, but it was so interesting to see like, wow, I thought these were super athletes and, and just like how men, how men develop is yeah. Very, very different. Yeah. So hearing about, hearing about the women's game and how early the recruiting process starts, what well, starts really early and it also ends really early. That is an incredibly unique, thing for me because mm. we have we, it's just so much more time there's also way fewer programs too that you can commit to you know so it's a little yeah. bit saturated but it's getting I think from what I understand I, I want to say it's getting worse it's not getting worse it's just changing that kids are now recru- recruiting starting earlier and kids are starting to commit a lot earlier than mm. when I was to play okay it feels, I mean, I committed a, unusually early and I have felt recruiting has changed a lot since, since even I was being recruited because it felt maybe it, club volleyball has also changed a lot. Like now people recruit oh, to wow. clubs and you sign a contract yeah. with your clubs in some places. And I was out of this loop in Michigan because Michigan club scene is so much less competitive than the California scene in a lot of places on the West coast. But, um, but it was like absurd to see Shannon Wells, who just got the UVA job, but was a associate head coach at Florida while I was there. I mean, watching her recruit was just like knowing which color prom dress she had and what this person's dog's name was and making these connections and just unbelievably gifted at it. And like putting origami alligators in the mail. I was like, you're, you know, really you really have to make an impact on these kids because the decision making time is very short and so now you have to send an origami alligator and just feels kind like, of feels like pro now yeah <laughs> a little bit feels like pro it's like we got to give you xyz for you to get just to come on to campus and then to get you to commit is even harder I don't know. I don't know if we're going in the right direction or the wrong direction, or if it's just a pendulum swinging really far wide right now, and then we're going to have to bring it back. But uh, I think people should start getting paid if it's going in this direction. Yeah, I think I have for your name, the name thing I'm all for. Like if you want to run your own camp or clinic as an All-American, do it. I completely agree. I completely agree because, I mean, 
there's not there isn't the same the same payout that you can have as like a men's basketball player even now like a women's soccer player because they have established leagues in the U.S. and they have established like you know a fan base that volleyball has but then they're not following volleyball players eight years after they leave a college team because there's no professional league here to like necessarily keep up with everybody going on except now they have AU sports the short season but during that time when you leave you or even while you're in school you should be able to profit off the very hard work that you've put in and the NCAA who's clearly screwed up women's sports for long enough should kind of like (laughs) take their hands off the wheel and let people (laughs) let people use their their talents to actually like benefit their life i agree i have nothing to say to that i'm with you well how would you do that though would it be uh would it be a pay scale like direct money going to you or are you just talking about benefiting off your name image and likeness i think name image likeness is enough for volleyball it's enough I think name image and likeness is enough for volleyball I think it would be pretty easy because they already have a scale at universities where they give you a cost of tuition it's not a lot of money I mean it's it's some cost of tuition or cost of attendance it might be called I can't remember the name because now it's been a few years but basically along with your you get a campus debit card and along with having to pay your rent per month and food, if you don't have training table, you get a little bit, very little extra money to cost of attendance because everybody knows, even if you're on a full scholarship, I know because my freshman year, this wasn't the case going out to a birthday dinner was like holding my breath because I didn't actually have time for a job or time to make any money. So I had no money. And I was like, Oh, God, we're going to go out to a birthday dinner. This is going to be $25. And I'm gonna have to call my parents and apologize, basically, because you know, it's, it's expensive, like it adds up. And so that's supposed to cover that kind of that kind of expense. And it can or it can't, but along with that, they have a system to determine how much money you should get. And along with that, they could easily calculate who's getting name, image, and likeness or have a base pay for, I don't know, Instagram followers. Is that like pathetic that we're going to base that off that? But I mean, it would, it would probably make sense. It would benefit every program too in summer camps. Yes. Because if you have the Mary Wise volleyball camp or the Keegan Cook volleyball camp with LMA Powell, or yeah. who you know what I mean and then Ella can make money off that camp too that's very true instead and of the like you can have the addition of like here's our roster or mm-hmm. you, know, you can use their name to profit your own program and themselves even yeah more. like the Which break off of totally the camp the LMA Powell setting camp on the side of the camp like I don't think you should have to be graduated to be able to do that no, no, you shouldn't. They can't even use current players' photo in in camp advertisements. I think. I think that's a rule. That is true. Yeah, yeah. which is ridiculous. I think. 
Yeah, I think you should be able to use your name. Got to use the moneymaker here. Yeah, but that's crazy, though. Like, you want to, you want your program to benefit. You also want yourself to benefit. So why not, why not everybody feast on, like, something like a camp? Or the Lauren Sanders middle blocker camp or whatever, you know? Yeah. And especially for volunteer assistance or graduate assistance, this is, that's a time when they as a coaching staff decides like, okay, we can't pay this person, but we can give them a good amount of money because camps make so much money and we can decide a separate salary for them for working the camp, either by being a lead on a court or taking a lot of responsibility, but they could also do that for players. You know, I mean, I think it's illegal right now, but they should, like you said, be able to do that same thing. where like, okay, players don't make money during the year this volunteer coach does make money in the air. They're all expected to show up and work a job. So they could do the same thing they do with them and decide like a, a rate for, like you said, the LMA Powell setting, setting clinic during camp. Yes. I'm sure we've all worked camps and we've in college and you get the paycheck at the end and you're like, I'm like, oh, this is worth the fractures I feel on the bottom of my feet for standing 12 <laughs> hours a day for three weeks. That's totally it's, fine. It's below I can go buy a cheeseburger. For sure. But you're like, I need this. And you yeah. want to impress your coach. You're like, this exactly. is all the loyalty here. The Florida camp is unbelievable because they have it. Dave Booz is a technical genius. And he is a schedule guy and I am not a schedule girl. I would say I have time. I have punctuality anxiety to the point where everyone thinks I'm very, very punctual, but I'm like, I'm scarred for life from college volleyball for the punctuality that I, I needed to abide by. And the camp was like water from like 12.03 to 12.06. And then you explain the drill for one minute and I had an iPad and Dave would always walk by my court and I would have a group of like recruits or something and then my hands are shaking and I'm like, okay, everybody, we're going to do all hands pepper today. And then I'm checking my watch, looking at the iPad. And it was just like the laughing stock of Florida volleyball over the summers. And every time I was like, I am like mentally, physically, and emotionally, I should be earning 12 times what I'm earning right now. <laughs> Oh man. Well, let's go back uh instead of us chastising the NC2A anymore. Let's go back to your freshman year at Florida. Okay. Did you feel ready at all when you walked on campus to play at a high level? When I walked on campus, yes. When I finished our first summer practice, no. I was feeling good about my personal game because I had had very little reason not to feel good about it up until that point. Um, and other than playing other talented players in, in club, but I was like, yeah, the ball, when I do my like no looky cookie chop shot down the line, it scores 1000% of the time. And of course I like walked into the gym and did this on the first ball and someone treated it as a free ball, which they rightfully should treat that as a free ball. And so I just realized I had to have, I had to hit the ball a lot harder. I came in weighing 127 pounds soaking wet 
And I was, yeah, I was small. I had never lifted a weight in my life. And I, I felt ready to play, but I just like had to find a new gear every single day going into the gym during summer. Summer B was a lifesaver my freshman year. Um, and I started the season during preseason. I remember like feeling like I kind of won a spot, but like when you feel you won a spot, it's because you're playing as good ish as a person who has a spot. It's not because you really won the spot and blew them out of the water every day, you know, and occasionally it is like that. But in my opinion, I was like, I'm playing as good as her. I was looking at our numbers. Maybe I was a little better one day. She was a little better the next day. And we had a meeting going into the season with the coaching staff and they were like, you're not going to start the first game. And I remember feeling like dagger through my heart, basically like so, so sad about it. And, but it was, it was clear that I, I wasn't totally ready at that time. And I ended up starting for the majority of my freshman season and playing three rotations fairly well, which was, I think a huge win considering the fact that I look back and I just look like a girl amongst women at that point in my life. That's fair. Did you, if you could pinpoint one thing that translated into your sophomore year where you thought, okay, mentally I need to make this adaptation going forward. What would it have been in your like evolutionary process? Is it just physicality? It was a little bit physicality. The reason I won the spot my second year is because I was a better passer than we had graduated. My freshman year, we had three amazing DSs and they played back row for both outsides, me and the other, and the other girl who was playing. And one of them was a libero and libero libero. I'm confusing my words with this now after playing professionally, but one of them was the libero and my second year, we did not have that kind of depth in the backcourt. And I was naturally a better passer along with Jiva Raychek, the girl who was freshman player of the year. And then I was competing with her my junior year and another more physical player than us had the spot because we had a DS. And so the next year Jiva and I won the job basically just on ball control. So I really needed to hit the ball harder, but we had a first team All-American opposite Alex Holston and they didn't look to me in big situations offensively. I played well, but I was not like a glue that held our team together by any means. I could just put the ball in a good enough spot for us to set Alex a ton of balls. And that was kind of the transition I had to make was adjusting the mindset that I, you know, I was always a go-to player growing up. And now I was like the compliment, making sure if I wanted to be on the court, I had to pass well enough to get Alex the ball and Ramat, of course. Was that a conversation that you had to have with Mary or it was like a role clarity type situation? Or is it something that you came to your own fruition of, I have to do this. It was a survival instinct. Both kind of, because I knew that I, I could see that what I had worked on all spring was not hitting and I wanted to get better at hitting because that was my natural, that's where I naturally feel most excited about the game. 
And my spring season, my freshman year was defense and serve receive and more defense and more serve receive and defense until my elbows were bleeding and more serve receive. And I was like, okay, they really don't want me to get that much better at hitting. And then the first spring practice, it was clear why, because, you know, Alex, Alex is a first team All-American and we just, and Ramat was also a first team All-American and we needed the two of them to take a ton of swings and they were able to do that and they did a really good job of it. So I kind of pieced it together on my own. And then we had end of the year and beginning of the year kind of coaches meetings where they talked about what they needed from you, what you expected of yourself and yada, yada, yada. And that conversation I'm sure was very clear in those meetings as well. Looking back, did you, cause I think those meetings in, in the moment don't feel that necessary because you're like yeah yeah, I get it I get it it." looking back do you appreciate those meetings more now of like wow I can't believe they took the time to sit down and tell me like this is what's going to happen this is what's going to go down I appreciate those meetings a lot from a at the time I was also very excited to have those meetings because I I'm a words of affirmation person and I crave the approval of my coaches and I want to know that we are on the same path and that I'm doing something especially because I love and respect them so much I wanted to know that they were happy with me and that they were like liked me or something and this meeting was another way to get alone time with them to ask them what I needed to do you know on a personal standpoint and then also like how they feel I was I was like fitting well, fitting in with the team because we also had player evaluations where the team could put in their assessment of another individual. And you talked about that in the meetings, which at times can be a very hard conversation. Oh, I, that's cool. Or and yeah. really shitty at the same time. <laughs> I mean, they assess, it, it leaves room for, unless you are an all around bad person and bad player, it's not the worst conversation you've ever had because there's a there's assessment on confidence on teammate skills on discipline on volleyball iq so okay if you're if you are the worst player in the gym you might have a bad volleyball iq score and the coaches are not going to roast you for that in in your meeting because no one there is under the impression you're going to be the starting libero next year let's say but if you are the worst in discipline, the worst in teammate skills, the worst in um, volleyball IQ as well. And improvement is another category. So, you know, there can be maybe your best player did not get that much better the last year, but she's still your best player. And one of your weaker players might not play, but she's improved a lot over the season. So, you know, there's room to feel very good about what you're doing. And that list is helpful in helping other people understand their role on the team because you also have to rank yourself. And that's when a conversation can be had. It's like, Oh, you put yourself as a number one teammate and your teammate average is 17 (laughs) as the last person. And so that's a really interesting conversation to have with people and an eye opener that I think does allow pretty good acceptance of roles at Florida, for example. Have you had that happen to you personally where you've ranked yourself? Well, probably I would suspect the opposite for you where you've ranked yourself 17 
and then you had a higher ranking? I only once ranked myself higher than I was and it was my freshman year summer B when I ranked myself as like six on teammate because I think you know I'm a great teammate so it's like the number goes you rank the first teammate to the 17th teammate if there's a girl on 17 if there's 17 girls on your team so everyone has to have a position and I put myself as like six because I'm like if someone needs me they can call me like I'm a hard worker I come to practice every day and of course I was like 13th because no one even knew me the upperclassmen weren't even didn't even like care about me or like me um at that point as we all know like freshmen are kind of dead weight on your summer b shenanigans so so that was the first time they didn't make me feel too bad about it and then every time after that I was pretty I'm like self-aware to a fault so I was pretty on the ball or I put myself higher than than the others ranked me because I was like oh no I don't want to be that person how do your how did the coaches present that player evaluation thing it did they kind of give you an explanation of what it is and why they're using it or just kind of say hey here's the piece of paper and go for it they had a pretty good explanation there's always a good explanation with Dave and Mary specifically because Dave is so technical and such a like stats guy that these numbers are important for him and Mary has been doing it long enough that when you go through your season rules you might like raise your eyebrows and be like hmm that's an interesting rule and she will say if it's a rule it means it needs to be said and so there is a long list and a lot of explanation around around the paperwork that you file and around and around these kind of activities that we would do. And for this one specifically, it was said, it's not meant to be something that hurts your feelings. It's not meant to be, it's not meant to be something that you should take personally. It's meant as a area of growth and it's meant to show how you see yourself, how others on the team see you and to be as, as best a teammate and as much as you can improve in these areas to kind of like see, see where you start out and to see like at the end, for example, my freshman, by the end of my freshman year, I was not the 13th teammate anymore because I had made connections with people and was getting along with people. And that's a moment they're like, they're not going to yell at me for not being the number one teammate, but say, cool, you got six spots higher. Great. And that's kind of the end of the conversation, unless there's some like blaring detail on the sheet. I think it's for honestly, now that I'm out of the way, sorry, I'm explaining this for too long. I think that it's a great way because coaches can't see what happens during summer training and they don't really know all the dynamics that are going on. And I think it's also a way for them to keep an eye on like, oh, you put someone as 17 on everything. You must like really hate her. (laughs) They can't be the worst at every skill. Yeah, they can't be the worst. You must have like something personally against this girl. Yeah, totally. Was there, when you did it, is it like sad face to frowny face? Uh, I mean, like one through 17? Or do you have a comment box as well? You don't get a comment box. I think for the better. Because numbers like eight through 12 or eight through 13, there's no reason that you put them in any sort of order. It's just like, this is how the number, basically, I just need to fill these spaces. And the comment box for... Followed by Q17 would be like 
she can't pass a free ball. I, I you know, no, I don't I'm know. Just thinking like if she's number seventeen teammate, like let's say it's your number one setter, for example, yeah. and maybe just she doesn't talk to anyone ever outside of the mm. team, right. It's like okay, she's like number thirteen teammate, and everybody marks her down as number thirteen, and but it's not because nobody dislikes her; it's just nobody knows her. Yeah. I think that's a conversation that they have, you know, there's been some questions I've answered like, oh, why did you put so-and-so so far down? It seems like she's a totally fine girl. And that's the same answer. And why I was ranked low my summer be my freshman year. It's just like, they don't really know you. Yeah. And we also did dates where like you had to go on a date once a week with someone during summer B and that was really helpful because otherwise, like you guys know, it's so rare as a freshman to go and have coffee with a senior on the team who, you know, has a schedule, is about to graduate, has their maybe like already established friendships and boyfriend or girlfriend already there. So it was, that was another thing that I felt like an effort to create a team atmosphere was, is definitely made at Florida, which like. I have very strong lasting friendships from every year that I've played, which, you know, I feel very lucky to say. How would you guys as a team deal with it when there was some resistance from a player to like, not necessarily with the player evaluations, cause that's coach driven, mm -hmm. but like with the uh, hanging out with your teammate, the date night kind of stuff. It depended on who was the seniors at the time. So my freshman and sophomore year, I think there was a little bit more rule breaking because we had a very lax senior class, especially my sophomore year. We had a very lax senior class and my group of classmates was not like that. We were rule followers. We all were like drinking the Kool-Aid, as I had said before, just were on the Mary Wise train, whether it led to Candyland or like a brick wall, basically, we were just like, sitting on board and wanted to do everything everything right and so I think I think that depended on yeah a form of leadership that was in place and every year we were successful so it doesn't it's not necessarily it's not necessarily about whether the team was going to be good or bad it was like the interworkings of the relationships so my junior year we lost NCAA tournament on an ace between CK my best friend and now she coaches at college of charleston ck and i and that was devastating in a lot of ways and my senior year we decided during the entire summer if someone didn't say mine in a name which is a general rule in our practice we just like as seniors decided everyone's getting on the line and we're running self-inflicted and so we we did that for all of my senior spring we had a dry season my senior year nobody had a problem with it like because the seniors were like we're gonna ask you guys to do this Ramat all-american who can probably get drunk before practice every day and still be the best blocker in the gym is having a dry season so there was there was a <laughs> there is a complete understanding and respect amongst amongst the group and I think it all depends on on who your seniors are and what rules they themselves follow or set yeah set too Wow. Hmm. I think that's, that's awesome that you say that because 
I've talked to Jackson. We've talked on this podcast about this, but I've we've had guys that I played with in college on, and we mm-hmm. all said our best practices were the ones where we were going to fight where somebody was about to go under the net, you know? And those didn't happen often. It was probably once a week. But we all agree that we were too nice. So hearing you guys that you guys had a great friendship, but knew you guys screwed up big, and then were willing to fix that in practice every day, you know, with the punishment, Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a little far for some people, but for me, I'm like, hell yeah. If you, yeah. That, that what if that's what it takes, and that's what it takes. I think a general understanding of the game has to be in place when you set those kind of rules. For example, like CK was, and now she's a coach, so it makes sense, above and beyond anyone else who was thinking of these things in the gym. So she would, if we were playing six on six, whether there's a scoreboard or whether it's spring practice or summer with just us, she would serve at me every time. And that was kind of strange because I was one of the best passers on the other side. And I would, you know, in spring and summer, you're playing with your entire roster. So you're also playing next to a DS who never actually gets to start on the team. And CK would serve at me every time because she's like, I'm going to get the player who I pass next to better. I'm going to give her my toughest ball, even if they win because Carly's passing every ball, I would rather do that. And if I'm hitting on the other side and I tip a ball over the block to, yeah, our second setter who never plays right back defense in a game, she would like yell at me on the car ride home and be like, you should hit at me every time. Cause then you'll actually know if you like hit a good ball. And that's such a confident thing to say. And it's 100% true. It's my, It's my biggest pet peeve now as a professional when, you know, sometimes you take girls from the second division practice team and they just need to fill a space on your, on your court. And you have players who are like, I'm going to win the day. I'm going to, I'm going to be an all-star in practice today. I'm going to serve every ball at this 18 year old kid who, you know, is not actually going to be playing with you against the top team in the league. Yeah, totally. I felt the same way. I used to serve our libero and Josh as much as I possibly could. And Marv was smart. He would pin us again. Not pin us. That's a very negative way of saying it now. Because I know that there are people in the gym that pin people against each other. He would not pin us against each other. But he would, any time in preseason where we were competing, Josh and I were never on the same team. Mm -hmm. That would never happen. That's like impossible. And it made it more fun because... Now you're competing because then it's so part of it too is, you know, it's like ego. It's like, who's going to walk out of this with some pride today? Yeah, certainly. You know, who can, who can make a situation like better? Hours? Yeah. I, I most, I get very irritated when you have <clears throat> the best player on a team or one of the best players on a team who plays with maybe like, like I said, the girl from the second division or the girl who never gets a chance to play. And, you know, that, and it's just like the excuse left and right, that ball needs to be higher. Oh, I thought you would go like the crisscrossing of communication. And I really do think like, you don't, talented players make other people around them better. And everybody knows that that's been commonly said. I'm not like, 
saying something new here with that statement, but it is, it's a lot about whether or not you can also accept blame and accept more responsibility and find a way to make your team better in a situation where you're not setting your best hitter at practice that day, but he's still your best hitter. He still has to like show that you can hit a ball if someone chucks it in the air. And it's, I, I do really enjoy those practices because you get to see some character. Absolutely. How was the, uh, how was the transition into pro for you? Cause you're talking about Florida, a very family, family like atmosphere from what mm-hmm. it sounds like. Um, and you said you've always been big on getting uh, words of affirmation from your coaches. Like, how has the relationship been with your coaches the last few years? And yeah, just how's it been going? So, my transition to professional volleyball was as smooth as anyone's I've heard of because I went to a team coached by a woman, Magalie, who's pretty well known in France. Uh, she was, she's the general manager now of the club that Maddie just won the French championship with, uh, this past season. And I played for her and she's as similar to Mary as you can get in like an intense French woman, basically. And she, she really did like take time to get to know us a little bit and was pretty interested, pretty interested in our lives outside of the gym and was a, you were able to have a conversation with her as like person to person, I would say, which is so important for, for me, I need to feel comfortable as a person to play well, at least I did at that time in my, in my career. And so my transition was, it was interesting because again, I had the same feeling like when I walked into Florida's gym and my like favorite shot didn't score and it seemed easy. Like I just realized in professional volleyball, I've hit the ball so much harder and I have to hit it harder consistently. And that was kind of like, I'm a low risk player by nature. I don't like making mistakes. I, you know, I really don't like making mistakes. That's not like, that's if the ball is not perfect, I would rather just like play another day, put it in and wait for the situation to arise. And I had to get a lot better at taking risk in those situations and going in with confidence, I would say, because I was getting subbed out a lot my first season. And even into my second season when I wasn't being aggressive enough and I was just thinking like, what do you want me to do? Like hit it to the back wall. And then in practice, a girl would hit it to the back wall. And I would hear like, brava, like this is volleyball. And I was like, like, fuck me. Like, okay, I need to do that. (laughs) Yeah, that's, uh, it's unique how it's something that we've, I mean, that I talk about a lot with my attackers abroad and with my little kids here. They're like 16. I just, I wanted to yank this girl the other day, actually. Poor girl. I hope she And I wanted to yank her because I said, I don't care if you hit it under the net. I don't care if you hit it at the back wall. I, I could care less. I just want you to hit one. I just yeah, want you to I mean, that's solid advice. I was like, I could care less. I was like, there's nobody here that c- can sub in for you today. So you can do whatever you want. You can screw up the whole game. You could lose us a match right now. I just need that must have made her feel so secure (laughs) hitting the ball you know she wouldn't do it and I was like I don't know what it takes 
yeah. get you to feel like you can do it besides obviously in practice that was our first tournament together so then now in practice I'm trying to encourage her more without mm. like nobody you can't get yanked you know yep. <laughs> we've got else. nobody we've got nobody here but how did you adjust to taking risk like is it just a, a mindset that you obviously you had to change yourself or was there something that Magdalie or Francois said that made you shift and acknowledge like okay I, I can do this I think I played with with setters who gave great opportunities to the player who's in rhythm and that was something I that was a situation I felt really comfortable scoring in and sometimes as an outside hitter who had talented opposites on my teams you wouldn't get that situation until mid-game or it could have been you know a pipe at 20 all when you haven't hit the pipe all game because of perfect passing and your middle is playing great or the opposite's going off you know whatever the case may be and I had to tell myself like when that situation comes you 100% have to go for it because the problem was not that I wasn't scoring all the time in highball situations. I was like being, I would say like medium aggressive, like hitting it, but just not like cracking it because I have a pretty whippy arm. Conservative. Yes. Conservative with the swing. And it was scoring sometimes and sometimes not. But then when I did get the rhythm, that was like, I could not mentally allow myself to be like, you have to play conservative today because that was a situation you're hoping for and that you need to kind of get your confidence from, for me, at least in the beginning, I really needed those swings to get my confidence. And I kind of just adopted this mentality based on the fear of getting subbed out, not on my own, like, wow, I'm, I'm like growing as a person. It was just like, I don't want to get taken out of this game because I'm in France. And the only reason I'm in France is to play volleyball. So I started like, trying to just rip balls and realizing that in my own game personally, when I do get my feet to the ball and hit it as hard as I can, I actually rarely make a mistake. I usually make the mistake when I decide it's a time to be conservative or when I'm like last minute thinking to roll shot a ball, which I still don't know how to do after 15 years of volleyball. I don't know how to roll shot, but like these kind of mistakes and so I just kind of ran with that like thing in my game and it's, it's been getting better and better every year. This past year is probably the best I played hitting wise. That's awesome. I have heard, and I had a kid ask me this the other day. And now that you say that, I feel like I gave him sound advice and with other hmm. attackers that I've played with, you can't, Jacks know this ain't no such thing as halfway crooks. You either go full <laughs> or you set it over on like a, especially in a really high ball situation like you see people try to just roll balls in and it hits the top of their fingers or it goes yeah. out of the net because they're thinking whereas you watch the best of the best do it and I don't know so many women's players as I do the men but you watch like Inga Pet or Matt Anderson or Taylor mm -hmm. or whoever and they just hit everything yep there's no halfway. They're either hitting it or they have a profound in intellectual ability to understand that they can roll this ball. 
but they're put they're always doing something with purpose versus just yeah. like, don't screw this up it's the same concept as when you tell a kid hey don't miss your serve the only thing they're thinking is don't miss the serve and then they yeah miss- exactly like I would say 90% of the time you tell someone not to miss their serve, they do miss their serve. Yeah, and they miss it horribly. Including like, we did a, we did something where you're supposed to visualize yourself doing good things. And I had to stop doing it because every time I visualize myself serving, I think I'm, I like visualize myself tossing the ball behind me or hitting it under the net. Like I visualize my worst fear. And by being like a worst fear type player, I like have never done that in a game situation. Yeah. but it's it's certainly the first thing I yeah visualize myself doing or the same as the the kid who is gets a super high ball from right back across the court you have all the time in the world and midway through the air you think like oh god what if I hit this like way out of bounds so then you like tip it and it goes under the net yeah it's I mean it feels the same I'm sure it's the same with receiving I know it's the same as setting where it's that ball that's kind of halfway it's not a high ball. It's not a perfect ball. And then all of a sudden, because you double clutch is what I call mm. it, like double clutch. Then it lands at like two meters. It never goes tight enough, you know, because you yeah. never get your hip around because all of a sudden you weren't aggressive enough because you overthought mm. it. And I'm sure receiving mm. the same way where you think, I mean, it's the easy ones, right? It's the ones that like it hits the net. And then all of a sudden you have more time than you thought. And then you're bunting balls to people. Exactly. Like a high, That's very true. Like a high float serve and you have to give it juice back. But because mm-hmm. you're not used to doing that, you know, you're like, oh, this is an easy ball. And the best example is free balls. You're like, free balls. so easy, but it takes so much mental capacity to make it perfect. If you want to watch people just unravel make a free ball drill where you have to do like 60 decent free balls in a row and just watch people when it gets to the number like 45 (laughs) and how fucking stressed out they are and myself (laughs) included i'm like i've passed just passed like 20 free balls perfectly and this last free ball is going over the net for sure it's going over the net and to see like tendencies and conservative yeah conservative tendencies come out the same ones that I would so much rather as a passer wear balls like I love jump tops and serves I love when someone like whips a low float at me because I can just like hit it off the top of my arms even like my chest and it's totally fine but when someone like puts in their low float like low lollipop coaches serve that kind of dies I can just I can just feel myself absolutely overthink the situation i hope no one's scouting this (laughs) yeah absolutely um what have been some of the different uh differences in training since you've been overseas that's a great question um i would say the first difference is you sign one-year contracts and you sign contracts most of the team signs contracts as like a woman who might be 30 years old or, you know, 22, but somewhere, somewhere in a range of like, you have what you're good at and you know what you're good at at this moment in time, very different from having an 18 year old who has a lot of skills that need to be developed. 
And plus, even if you do spend a ton of time developing those skills, they're going to sign a new contract the next year and you're going to spend the entire year working on something small. So I think we play a lot of six on six mm-hmm. in professional volleyball. I know um, Madison and I this year have called each other as we were like breaking our bodies were breaking down being like, we've played six on six five days in a row. And now we have a game tomorrow. And it just, it happens so often because people just need to play. They need to dig a hard driven ball. They need to like read the situation. And there's, there's much less of a system you can see with teams. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's, it does count on a coach scouting. Well, then you can tell someone has a system, but one person plays middle back way differently than the next person, their next outside plays middle back. And in college, you can really see like a system that teams have, and they've spent four years developing and teaching their players how to do that. And it's very unclear in, in professional volleyball, unless you watch a lot of film, like what people are individually going to decide to do that day. Mm -hmm. That is true. When you're scouting people, when you're scouting teams, you're scouting people, not a system. Mm-hmm. That's very well said. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's spot on. Because the way that you block as a left side versus the way that your teammate blocks is probably like she could static block. She just stands at the pin waiting and you see yeah. block constantly and want to help the middle block. Yeah, exactly. And I, I also asked my coach the first year we were blocking slides and I was like I usually watch the player go in case it dies and I shuffle block to the slide but I can also swing block to the slide like you know you can do both and I asked the coach I was like do you uh, do I do you prefer if I shuffle block or I swing block she was like eh, yes like uh, whatever one you do is the best and I was like okay so it's all about that like just the other person was standing just get it done no regard for like if it hits off your head and goes to target it's like amazing pass bravo carly (laughs) i do kind of like that philosophy to an extent though because it gives so much creative freedom to the player Mm -hmm. it also it's one of those things and mike i mean i've six different coaches in six years and they've all said the same thing they're like, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, yep. we have a problem. I which I is, find that to be a relief as well in my career, especially this past year when I felt also really shitty because it puts an immense it puts more pressure on the player than it does the philosophy. Yeah. yeah I mean because there's no system I've, that you can come back to. It's just you do it. And if you can make it work great and if you can't you're fired yeah my my coach this past season he was very much so like I've given you all the tools I gave you a piece of paper that told you what the other team did (laughs) and you know if you didn't use that piece of paper in within your game to the best of your ability that day it's like standing up and looking at the president of the club being like I did my job why do we have such duds out there, you know? <laughs> Which is very funny for me. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of uh, pros so unique. I'd, and you actually, you can see it in college volleyball. 
now that I'm getting older and you start looking at people that are on the last leg of their contract and all of a sudden they start screaming a lot more, right? They start yeah. like really aggressive timeouts. They're not communicating to players as much. In a- no, it looks like, to me, it looks like someone being like, holding a big sign above their head being like look at me I'm coaching it's like ah, like yelling at people <laughs> athletic director comes into the gym and it's like pulling players aside being like okay uh yeah check this out like pointing to very like like not clear things on the court and it, it's very funny to me to see this as well yeah I didn't I mean I kind of I recognize it when I was younger but not to the extent I do now how different people are when the right person's in the gym yeah you know that's very be, true when they gotta be a pro all of a sudden they're like oh i'm good yeah puts, me. puts the phone down that was watching a manchester united game during <laughs> <laughs> not naming names here it was not involved in college <laughs> life of pro man yeah well carly uh i think we're good here great thanks for having me this was a this was a pleasure i love talking about volleyball you guys are a joy to zoom with (laughs) (laughs) thank you for the time appreciate you coming up yeah no problem no problem thanks guys of course